On the show today, Martin Skanke, chairman of the Norwegian Government's Commission on Transition to a Low-Carbon Economy. And with us is also my co-host, Rainy Indal, founder and managing partner of Summa Equity. So today we'll talk about the need for a total transition of the economy and also a deep understanding of nature. So Martin, a warm welcome to the show. Great to have you here. Thank you so much. You are heading the Norwegian Commission on Transition to a Low-Carbon Economy. And you're also a chairman of PRI, which is the Principles for Responsible Investment, and a board member in several companies. And previously, you also led an expert group on climate risk in this government pension fund global, and also the Norwegian Climate Risk Committee. And you also served as director general at the office of the Norwegian prime minister. So you've done so much and you're so engaged. So I'm really curious, where does your passion and deep commitment to help resolve the climate crisis come from? So interesting question, because when I think back, I don't think there was like a single moment, like an epiphany, like one event directly, but I think maybe indirectly, actually, and this might sound a bit strange, but the global financial crisis that we had in 2008, 2009, when I was working on asset management and responsible in the Ministry of Finance were overseeing the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund, the oil fund, that sort of made me think more deeply about financial markets and their roles, and then particularly risks and all the risks that we are unaware of, what we don't think of, and how we model the economy and the shortcomings in our understanding of both the economy and the risks to the economy. And uh, also, I think the importance of time horizon, a lot of this was, you know, the mismatch between some of our shorter-term concerns and some of the longer-term objective of economic policy. So I think I came into the climate issue in particular and sustainability issues maybe more in general with the sort of asset management risk hat on. And then as you start digging into that, those issues, you see that there are lots of much more broader uh, societal issues, ethical issues, and uh, I think I, through working on the Climate Risk Committee, where we were asked to do an assessment of climate risks for the Norwegian economy, I think just understanding the whole scope of these issues and the breadth of it. And then in 2015, at the um, so-called COP in Paris, where we, they finalized the Paris Agreement on Climate, I was asked to join a working group called the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures. And that seems very dry. I guess for some people it is. But we came up with a framework for how companies should be reporting on climate risks. And I think that work also made me think more deeply about the relationship between climate risk, the physical risks of changing climate, the transition risk, and sort of corporate strategy and how that would affect businesses. So I think I came into it from very many different angles, but not like one big single moment where I thought, oh, the planet is uh, burning and I need to do something. It was, I think, for me personally, a much more gradual realization. And Martin, it's, uh, it's great to have you on the show. And you have been an extremely valuable uh, part of uh, supporting and advising Summa on these issues since the start. So that has, uh, for me personally, been uh, quite a good collaboration where I've learned a lot of, from you on the, on the risk side. I've been more on the opportunity side. So this transition 
also has a lot to do with opportunities. But I think for me personally, when you were, I was you know, responsible for overseeing the sovereign wealth fund through the financial crisis, there was a lot of downside risks that we were concerned about at that time. And then obviously, I think the value of having a very clearly formulated strategy and sticking to that strategy also made us actually realize some opportunities. On that note, the other thing was early on in, in sort of ESG assessment and and going about it and gotten a lot of recognition. Now it seems they are leaning more in on how to really take the material aspects around this into their approach and strategy. Do you have any, any reflections on uh, what you're seeing now? So I was asked a few years ago to actually advise the Norwegian Ministry of Finance on how they could incorporate the climate issue into the mandate they give the fund. So in Norway, the Ministry of Finance is the formal owner of the fund, and then the central bank is the manager of the fund. And the central bank manages the fund within the mandate given by the Ministry of Finance. So the Ministry of Finance asked me and a group of other people to give them advice on how they could better incorporate climate into the mandate as a risk factor for the fund and how they should think about climate as a risk factor for the fund. So we did that and they changed the mandate according to our recommendations. That was two years ago. And then on the basis of that, the fund started working on, well, how would they as manager set out a climate strategy within the new mandate that they got? And it's, uh, well, number one, I've been very impressed by the work that they're doing. And having worked on the fund for a long time and actually writing the first mandate that was given to the bank back in 1996, 97, there's one big change over these years. And that is that when we formulated the first mandate, we actually said, the Ministry of Finance said to the central bank, you're not allowed to exercise your ownership rights. We were afraid that the fund would become politicized, entangled in all kinds of you know, difficult political issues. And we thought that would be difficult for a fund that was managed by our central bank and that it will carry a lot of reputational risk. I think in reality, what we did, I think we recognized that ownership strategies in general were important, but to be blunt, that we could be a free rider on corporate governance activities, engagements by other investors. I think as the fund grew, that position became untenable for two reasons. One was there were a lot of expectations in Norwegian society about being a responsible owner. And secondly, the fund became so large that it wasn't possible for us to just rely on other investors to uh, discipline management in the companies we invested in. This is the area, I think, where there's been the greatest change in the fund over these 25 years. If you think about the investment strategy as such has been largely unchanged. There's been a gradual increase in the allocation to equities, but the whole governance structure and the investment strategy, all the main elements are in place and have actually been pretty robust over 25 years. But on this one topic, there has been a significant change, which is going from saying you're not allowed to exercise your ownership rights to say you can exercise your ownership rights if it's necessary to protect the value of the fund and now saying we expect you to exercise ownership rights and that's actually the main strategy we have 
for being a responsible investor. That's been an enormous shift. And I think it raises lots of issues around what economists call principal agent problems and the relationship between the owners of companies and the manager of companies. The fact that, you know, as an owner, you have a very long time horizon. The sovereign wealth fund is essentially set up as a permanent fund and should, in theory, exist permanently. Whereas managers of the companies you invest in, you know, usually would have a much shorter time horizon. And so one of the issues with, for instance, climate is how do you incentivize management to take account of a risk factor that is sort of beyond the horizon of most sort of corporate planning cycles? And since I'm talking to you as a manager of a private equity fund, it's interesting, I think, to note that the big difference between private equity and listed equity is exactly this corporate governance aspect, that the private equity owner is much more hands-on, demanding much more, I think, in general from management. And you could see that as a way of addressing some of these principal agent problems. And I think an interesting question is perhaps, can the managers of listed equities learn even more from the managers of private equity in terms of addressing corporate governance issues? What kind of issues should, should they be prioritizing? How should they work with management? How do you ensure that there is a proper division of roles and responsibilities, that you're an active, demanding, challenging owner, but that you also don't micromanage companies because that's not something that you can do as an owner? So I think that's an interesting development and maybe an interesting aspect of this. And I can also see that and I'm also impressed with what Doyle Fund and Nicola Tangen are doing now on that whole area. So that's good. It's good and it's very ambitious. If you look at their new climate strategy, that should be an inspiration to all investors. You know, reading that document is very thoughtful, very principled, but also very, very ambitious. I know that you will publish uh, an important assessment report in uh, November, Martin, but Perhaps you can share with us some main topics that are already actually emerging. Yes, sure. So I'm, uh, as you said, chairing now a commission on the Norway's transition to a low-carbon economy. And the mandate that we have for the commission is to give advice to the government on how Norway can become a low-carbon economy by 2050. The mandate is really broad and covers lots of topics, including the links between climate uh, issues and nature issues. If I were to summarize in maybe three points, how we must change in terms of our thinking about climate policy, we need to, number one, think with a much longer time horizon. I think we've had a sort of myopia in our climate policy, very focused on short-term strategies for short-term uh, reductions in emissions. And now we need to think about, are we promoting solutions that actually fit in a low-carbon society in 2050. So that's one, the time horizon. The other one is the breadth of it, which is we can't think sector by sector. We can't think on emissions alone because we need to realize that when we talk about deep cuts in emissions, uh, and the ambition here is cutting our emissions by 90 to 95% by 2050, so then it's not a question of marginal changes, but of total transformation. It will affect most sectors of the economy. And the third is we need to think much more systematically. And uh, now I think climate policy has been developed in a much more ad hoc fashion. 
businesses, financial markets need more predictability in the use of policy instruments. Uh, I think we underestimate perhaps the importance of expectations about future climate policy. If you're a business and you're making investments today, you make those based on your assessments or your expectations about the future. And a lot of the expectations we have about climate policy are actually self-fulfilling. So if we expect that climate policy in the future will be much tighter, we will make investments today that reflect that. But that will actually help us meet the climate objectives in the future. And vice versa, if people don't believe that climate policy will be successful, they will make investments accordingly, and it will reduce the chance of actually achieving success in climate policy. So there is this self-fulfilling quality of these expectations. And the only way politicians can create better expectations and more commitment, more credibility, is thinking about the institutional mechanisms around climate policy. Those are three things that we will go much more deeply into. So what does it mean in practice? So I'll just mention a couple of examples of issues where this way of thinking might change the decisions that we would have made. So one of the main strategies of Norwegian climate policies recently has been a massive use of biofuels for road transport, for instance. So that's a good measure in the sense that in the short term, it brings emissions down. However, Norway is now alone responsible for about 10% of the world's global demand for advanced biofuels. And these biofuels create a lot of pressure on land use globally. So is this really a solution that will take us to 2050? It's not possible to imagine a world that has met its climate objectives in 2050 by using biofuels to the extent that Norway is doing today. So makes sense if your main objective is reaching emissions reductions next year, because it helps reach emissions reductions next year. But it's not really a solution that will take us to 2050. And the same, I think, if you think about another element of transportation, which is We've spent a lot of money in Norway stimulating the use of electric vehicles. Again, in the short term, we get a decarbonization of our transport system and we get lower emissions. But we're actually stimulating the purchase and use of bigger and heavier cars. And they have a large footprint in terms of the resources needed to build them. And we now have in Norway about three million cars, private vehicles. They weigh maybe one and a half to two tons each. So it's about five to six million tons of cars or one ton of car per person in Norway with an enormous footprint. The cars are parked on average 97% of the time. So is a good transport system in 2050 a transport system where everyone owns a huge electric car? we need to start in the other end and think about how can we design our societies, our cities, so that we reduce the need for mobility? How can we move transportation needs from the private individual solutions to collective solutions, either through trains, buses, but also 
sharing of cars so that we can reduce the footprint. And then think about the last resort is really electrifying the private vehicles that are left after you try to reduce the need for, for a private vehicle. But we sort of started at the opposite end. We started by incentivizing everyone to buy their own electric car. And I think we'll find that that policy probably will be difficult to reverse. But if we had thought more systematically about is the solution we're promoting today a solution that has a natural place in 2050, we would have maybe thought about it differently. That's a good point. And as you know, we, we published a report on how Europe can become circular by 2040. And uh, we pick up on a lot of those points as well. I think circularity is necessary uh, for us to bridge this gap because we have you know, not only too high emission, but we have also too high footprint in general. And so if we want to reduce that footprint, we need to do it through using our resources more wisely. And I think circularity is a great concept for that. And it's also something that we will discuss in the report without giving too much away. Yeah, Martin. So we generally have a huge tendency to kind of fall in love with solutions that are pretty short-term, medium-term, like, as you say, electric cars and all of that, instead of kind of looking at it from a systemic level. But from what I read also on your on the Commission's uh, website here about the low emission strategy for Norway as a society is right now at least based on, on this polluter pays principle, on very effective policy instruments, and then a lot of support for tech uh, development. So you're actually saying that this is not enough to transition Norway into a healthy economy that does not depend on oil and gas. No, it's, it's not enough. Obviously, these uh, economic incentives that we use, and particularly the a carbon tax, is useful for many reasons. It reflects a fairness principle that if you emit something, you have to pay for it. But I think it also incentivizes new technology. And I think it's technology neutral. It doesn't require politicians to have a view on a specific policy, but more encouraging innovation to reduce emissions. But a lot of the decisions that we take that will affect society in 2050 are decisions that are not taken in a market. They are taken by non-market actors like local governments, for instance. And local governments have a huge part to play in the transition to a low-carbon economy. In Norway, you know, we have maybe the most uh, delegated government in the world in terms of what we let our local municipalities decide. And there are many good things to be said about that. It brings decisions closer to people. It gives increased legitimacy. It makes it possible to adapt to local circumstances. So Norway is not a very sort of centralized type of government. But we are indirectly also expecting local governments, municipalities, to take account of a climate crisis that is global in its nature. And they, in Norway, municipalities have responsibilities for decisions on land use, which is central. They have responsibility for decisions on transport and transport systems, waste management, and lots of other issues that are central to the transition to a low-carbon economy. And then we know that there are some of these problems that are probably not solvable directly by taxes. For instance, we know that there is a lot of potential for energy efficiency isn't realized because of 
sort of mismatched incentives. So if you own a house and rent it out to someone and you pay a lot for improving energy efficiency, it means your tenants get a lower electricity bill. So we know that there is a lot of these mechanisms, which means that other things like building standards, for instance, and regulations on building standards is an important tool in the transition to a low carbon economy. Or even, and we touched upon this, you know, city planning. City planners aren't subject to carbon taxes or you know, don't make decisions based on uh, economic incentives. But how we plan our cities, whether we build more concentrated or more spread out, those are decisions with a huge impact on land use, on transportation needs, and those are not decisions that are taken in the market. So I think we need to think much more broadly about the scope of policy instruments needed in the transition. And there are many stakeholders in this transition to a low emission society. I mean, you mentioned the government, there's municipalities and business and uh, financial industry, of course, general public. There's a lot of people who know a lot and they all have expertise. But how do you think and how do you tap into this collective intelligence, actually, and especially nature's intelligence? That's a very interesting question because I think, you know, there are many lenses you can look at this climate issue through. Natural scientists think about the balance of natural systems. Economists call this uh, the greatest sort of market failure in the world and uh, think about it in economic terms. A political scientist would look at this and say, well, this is actually a, an issue of institutional failure, that we don't have institutions that are set up to deal with these types of complex issues at the local level and at the national level and at the global level. So all of these perspectives are valuable and valid. There are some very difficult trade-offs to be made uh, between decision-making systems that are inclusive, that gives everyone a voice, but at the same time can facilitate the speed we need in the transition. And we've had some very difficult issues now that many people in Norway will be aware of with building of wind turbines in sensitive areas where there are rain herders from the Sami community that are being negatively affected. And where we see these, uh, you know, institutional issues that we don't really have in place, appropriate institutional mechanisms for making sure that we uh, respect uh, all the rights that indigenous peoples have, but at the same time manage to actually build new energy with the speed that we need to meet our climate objectives. So that's a failure, I think, of institutional mechanisms more than anything else. And I don't think there are any easy answers to this, but we, the commission that's working on this, we will devote a whole separate chapter to decision-making systems and how we can maybe improve those to at least mitigate some of these things. But I don't think there are any easy answers to this. No, in, indeed. It is a wicked problem and you need then a lot of sort of uncoordinated stakeholders who might have different incentives to really cooperate in going in the same direction. It's a hard task. This is very difficult and it's not something that the market will solve. And I think institutional design here is extremely complex, but also very important. In Norway in general, having strong local governments has been very good for us because they have a lot of legitimacy. They're very close to the people they represent. But trying to solve what's essentially a global problem through local municipalities' decision-making 
is going to be very challenging. And maybe we need to re-examine a little bit the balance between central government and local government, at least. Question, Martin. We started out talking about that you, after the financial crisis, really went into the whole risk side of, of climate change. Do you feel that is the risk now higher than what you perceived it to be when you started out on this journey, or is it lower? Oh, it's a lot higher because you know we're constantly postponing the transition. So both the physical risk is accumulating and is going higher, but also the transition risk because the later we start the transition, the faster it has to go. And that fast transition is much more challenging from a risk perspective. There will be dislocations in markets, sudden changes in expectations that can change valuations, so increased risk of financial instability. So from a risk perspective, and both from a physical risk and a transition risk perspective, starting early and making change gradually would have been the best approach. But we're past the point where I think that we can reach our climate objectives by doing things slowly and deliberately. We, we actually are now in a place where we need to move fast even if that increases transition. So, and I think it's important also to recognize that the time scale of physical risk and transition risk are vastly different. The physical risks will accumulate over time. The transition risks are related to the transition period. And so that risk will sort of dissolve gradually as we transition. And when we have transition, there will be no transition risk left, but there will still be lots of physical risk. And I think that's also a challenge of our decision-making systems that I think in the near term will focus maybe too much on transition risk. And that will lead us towards a slower transition to manage that risk better. But we will then be accumulating a lot of physical risk uh, that we haven't thought about how we will deal with. But I am still hopeful, Martin, that the report you are coming out and the work you've done now on how to transition over to a low-carbon economy and, and also the work that uh, we and some have done on, on circularity and waste for Europe, those are good sort of roadmaps for how we can actually do some of the changes and also get more alignment among the stakeholders. So uh, I became at least a bit more optimistic that it is achievable, but uh, we need someone to orchestrate this and get the parties together. I think there are two areas where I have been pleasantly surprised. One is there's been some good news on the technology front over the last few years. So I think that's been a positive and we could get lucky and have more good news on technology in the coming years. And I think the other thing that's encouraging is actually the rapid change in the financial industry itself about how it thinks about climate risk and how seriously companies in the financial sector are thinking about climate risk. And that happened in a way before politicians came to an agreement. I remember I told you I was at the Paris meeting in 2015 and I was you know, giving a presentation there. And I said then that I think actually now the financial sector is running ahead of politicians and that financial sector is now doing more than politicians are doing. And in a small way, perhaps, uh, the fact that politicians saw that business communities and finance communities were taking this very seriously, I think also helped create 
maybe the political conditions and environment that was necessary to reach an agreement. We talked a little bit about uh, the oil fund and their you know, climate strategies, but they're not the only ones. I think there are lots of investors out there who are really doing a lot of very good work on this, thinking about corporate engagements. And I think that actually has effect. And we see that in the shareholders meetings of many companies where investors are discussing climate plans, putting a lot of pressure on companies to come up with good transition plans. And I think that's been very encouraging. And this is also an area where I feel that there's been sort of a lot of surprises on the upside over the last, let's say, 10 years. Martin and Rainer, for that matter, what do you think the world needs most right now? The need for more policy action. The financial sector is taking this very seriously, but we need more credibility around the trajectory of climate policy over the coming years. And I think that's Unfortunately, I think when we sort of have a shortfall in policy, politicians compensate by just setting more higher ambitions rather than delivering on the ambitions that they already need. And that, I think, creates a trust deficit. We don't need higher ambitions, but we just need more action on delivering. And I think we've come to a point where we have to make some tough choices. We've done some of the easy stuff. You know, I gave a couple examples on Norwegian climate policy, which was, you know, subsidizing electric vehicles, giving people access to a cheap, big, new, luxurious car. Well, that's a very popular policy, but we will not solve this problem only by that types of policies. And we need to do some of the more difficult stuff. And that necessitates leadership. And I think we have a leadership deficit in this area. I, I support that, Martin. And I also think, bringing up what you mentioned on the oil fund, I think that large pools of capital is starting to push companies to set targets and that they are voting with their feet in certain uh, instances. I think it's, uh, it's also moving uh, in the right direction. So, and that will also, uh, I think, you know, companies are starting to realize they have to deal with this both from the risk side, but also from the opportunity side. And if the policymakers and the large uh, owners and, and capital pools are also pushing in, in that direction. I think you can maybe see an acceleration of this. You said, you know, we moved a bit slow coming here, but that pace could uh, really step up. I think that's right. But I think there are uh, what's emerging are very different trends in the regulatory environment between the main markets. So the difference now between the EU and the US is growing. The EU has a very ambitious policy agenda on this. And I think in the US, there's a lot more pushback. So that's also a risk factor, I think, for developments going forward. So Martin, what's your advice to young people, you know, when they are making choices to design their life work? These issues are really complex and it takes a lot of skills to try to solve them. You need to have passion and you need to have commitment and you need to have the interest, but you also need hard skills. You need to understand nature systems, technology, economics, whatever your field is. I think you just need to learn all of those tools to get a good toolbox you can use to address these problems. I don't think that your passion is alone but I, maybe that's a very old-fashioned view that actually the toolboxes that you get from learning natural sciences, mathematics, statistics, 
economics, political science, history. And I think just recognizing the complexity of this and that very many, almost all fields of scholarship, of inquiry, you know, all disciplines can have important perspectives that will help us in the transition. So I don't think it means everyone should study technology, but it means you can study whatever field you're interested in, but do it well, work hard, and then think about how you can apply insights from political science, from economics, from biology, from statistics, whatever field you're interested in, and apply it to these areas. But I know that's very boring advice. To pick up on it, but to be a little bit inspirational, I just want to share an anecdote because uh, last night I had a discussion with my daughter. She brought up that Norway has uh, approved now deep sea mining and she was uh, really appalled by the whole thing and she was very well read up on it. What the science said was all the experts have said around it and the political process that led to that decision. And she was completely appalled and she was challenging me, what were we doing within SUMA? around this and uh, so it is you know young people today they actually read up on stuff and do their homework and they keep us accountable for even the policymakers. and i think that's important too that all learning doesn't happen in school you can learn a lot elsewhere so uh, and i'm not saying that school or you know university is the best option for everyone but i do believe in facts just having respect for the complexities of this problem. Because actually, in a way, I think it's some of these sort of quick fixes that have brought us to some of these problems and, you know, choosing things with a short term, time horizon, quick fix solutions. I think having that deep understanding of the interplay between all the, you know, energy, nature, climate, that's actually the key to solving this in a good way. And that just requires a lot of study and careful consideration. But I must add just that we're very kind of also inspired by having a concrete problem ahead of in front of us and then trying to solve it. And that gives a lot of energy. And so that might also tend to get you into the short, medium term perspective because you want to fix it. But then again, what is the kind of a larger narrative? What is the dream picture that you're actually looking forward to? And I think there, the young people can also help us in also designing that, what we are striving for, so that we have the direction in there. So Martin and Rainier, what do you want the main takeaway to be for the people listening to this episode? We have forgotten in our part of the world, in the sort of developed world and the rich countries, we've forgotten what scarcity is because we've grown up in abundance. And so we think there is abundance of everything, but there isn't. And I think understanding that the natural system, our climate system, represents scarce resources, and we need to be careful in how we manage them. I think this is something that our parents and grandparents understood naturally. People in poor countries understand this because they live with scarcity every day, and they think, you know, we need to take careful use of resources. Uh, you talk about circularity, Rainier, but if you go to Africa, there's circularity. Nothing goes to waste. People are working on, you know, waste sites all day to just find tiny scraps of metals or other things that they can sell and recycle. So I think we need to relearn scarcity and understand what it means and that resources are finite and are economic system has to fit within the limits of the natural system. 
Now, I think we've unlearned that. I think our predecessors, our grandparents, and I think they understood this intuitively, and we've forgotten. That's uh, maybe the main message that we need to relearn scarcity as a concept and apply it to our lives. So one of the takeaways uh, that I would uh, add is we need to connect the bigger picture with how can we get there with what can I do on a micro level. So, And I think that's why it's quite important what you have been uh, doing now, also Norwegian Commission for, for Transition to a Low-Carbon Economy, uh, what Summa have been doing on, on circularity uh, for Europe, to put it in a macro context, how can we get there and what is needed. Because then it's easier for each individual then to think about, okay, I'm in this area. This is how I can uh, align what I'm doing with this broader body picture. So I do think uh, connecting the macro and the, and the micro is important. And that's why I think what you've been doing, Martin, uh, is fantastic. Well, thank you. And I think what you're doing is fantastic because I think I've been working just thinking about, you know, as you mentioned, I'm chair of this principles responsible investment, which is about bringing institutional investors together and helping them address sustainability issues, responsible investment issues. And it, you know, sometimes it comes a bit abstract. It's the, you know, how you conceptually should do this. And I think, Reynir, you know, you and Suma, you're bringing this down to how do we apply this in practice? And so there are lots of insights there that I think is useful to bring back to the wider investment community. And I think that's the role of the PRI in a way is to try to identify good practices and sort of synthesize them and then bring them back to the wider community so we can learn from each other. And I think all of this about sustainability and climate issue is a giant learning process for all of us. And I think you've been very good at bringing this down to the practical level. What does it mean for me as an owner and for the companies we invest in? So I think that it's been really interesting to watch the very thoughtful process you've had to this over several years. Thank you, Martin. And thank you, Rainier, for a great and very valuable dialogue. This is Summa and Friends, the show that inspires and guides you on how we together can create a wiser future. Listen to unique leaders and experts exploring the challenges we are facing and revealing their stories about the solutions and how to get there. Episodes are released bi-weekly on your favorite podcast platform. And the week after, we release an in-depth blog article to help you capture the core ideas from the dialogues and how you can help move things forward. Summa and Friends is a podcast for people with the courage to care for a wiser future. To find out more, you will find links and show notes on summaequity.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening to the show. We hope it has inspired you to reflect on what you can do to contribute. And to make it easy for you to find and listen to this show again, Subscribe on your favorite podcast app and please share this episode with one person you know would benefit from hearing it. I'm Vesna Luca and you've been listening to Summa and Friends. And until next time, live with purpose and be the change you want to see. Okay.